Welcome to Thrive Deeper, the show based on the Thrive Bible Reading Guides. This is an ongoing conversation about God's Word with Thrive's author, Dr. Matthew Jacoby, and your host, DJ Payne. G'day and welcome to Thrive Deeper, episode 103, 103. It is I, DJ Payne, your humble host, and on this fortnight's episode, we go into Job, the book of Job, part two. This is the second part of our three-part series on the book of Job. Matthew Jacoby and myself are deep diving into the book of Job, and this episode, we go into a bulk of the book. In fact, we're going to try to cover, believe it or not, 35 chapters on this episode. We're going to be introducing you to such characters as Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, Elihu, all great names of the faith, of course, that you recognize well as we dive into the book of Job. This is a really interesting part of this ancient book of wisdom. So we're so excited to bring it with you today. So grab that pen, grab your copy of Thrive, and uh, of course, open up your Bible to the book of Job on this week's episode of Thrive Deeper. Matthew, you seem to be in very good spirits today. There's an extra little spring in your step this Is morning. There? Yeah, yeah. You seem a bit happy. For, for, for a couple of guys who are about to enter into a really sorrowful, harrowing oh, part of the Bible, you oh, seem I'm very too happy. happy. I'm too happy. <laughs> All right, I'll see what I can do about that. <laughs> no, it's good to see, it's good to see you. Know, you I've, been, see happy. I've been, you know, I, I write the Thrive, the editions of Thrive, like months before. Yes. In, in, and, uh, and I, most of them, like a, as I work on them, uh, you know, I do a bit of extra research and from what I did, you know, the last time and there's always much more to learn. I am right now getting so into the book of Leviticus. <laughs> I, seriously, I am getting right into it. Okay. Uh, re, you know, redoing the Thrive on Leviticus. Reading this book uh, called Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord. It's a theology wow. of the book of Leviticus. Wow. And it has been revelatory. Yeah. Like it's quite a dense, I mean, it's interesting because it's quite a dense scholarly work on the book of Leviticus. Yeah. But just the, uh, the literary subtleties yeah. of the book of Leviticus and how it sits within the, the Pentateuch, I, I, I want to record something on it now. Well, can we skip? Can we skip forward? Because no, I'm so excited. No. About Leviticus. Oh, that is the most, one of the most Matthew Jacoby things I've ever heard. Is you so excited about the book yeah. of Leviticus? But we're getting into the book of Job, and you know, immediately my brain is trying to find ties between Leviticus and Job. <laughs> and actually, what we're getting into this week, and this is actually what I love about this book. This is what makes this book unique. Is is the way that it throws up this question? Probably the biggest question that people ask mm. about suffering in the in the world. Mm. And, you know, Job struggles with this issue and you get this dialogue, and this is what we're going to get into this week, yeah. you get this dialogue uh, between his friends come in and it's it's a dialogue that is it's really the closest biblical thing to the works of Plato, which are all set out in very similar dialogue form. Yes. Where you have different players and you have Socrates as sort of the main... Um, the main player, and everyone presents their views and they have these arguments. And sometimes at the end, it's quite unresolved even. Yeah. Uh, often at the end, what you come to at the end of these these works of Plato, these Socratic dialogues, is that 
people just realise what they don't know mm. or what they mm. can't know. And this is actually a very similar thing that happens in, uh, in the book of Job. And it struck me, that parallel has struck me yeah. uh, this time around, how, how the dialogues work, how the dialogues pull down every attempt Mm. to understand the situation. Mm. And in the end, what we realise is why we can never understand things like this. That will, to me, that's a profound yeah, en- ending. It is. is a pre- so, so last on the last episode of Thrive Deeper, we we sort of set up the 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 scene. We set up the you know scenario. The, we basically just covered the first two chapters yeah. of this big book, the Book of Job, and now we've got another thirty five chapters sticking mm. through in this episode. And again, we're going to be really doing a flyover. Yeah, not a yeah. you know not no, the, right. not yeah. the usual you know deep you know deep yeah. into each chapter that, that we usually do. And I think you can do that safely with the Book of Job. Um, because it's not uh, like a dense book of theology or doctrine mm. that we need to cover each point. Yeah, that's right. It, it is, you know, very poetic language yep. and, you know, very wisdom. But in looking at it, I, 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 went, I went, as I do, down my little rabbit trails of deep dives of who these people are and different traditions around the book of Job. I found that in the um, what's it called again? The Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Septuagint. Yeah. Thank you. Um, there is an extra bit at the end of Job. There is an extra bit, and it gives a genealogy of Job. Right. Yeah, and it's and it says, and this is, and then I went down a deep dive into that. Right. Well, now I'm going to have to check that one. Out. <laughs> again, and again, uh, it's rejected by. Hebrew scholars, and mm. it's rejected by most Christian scholars. So let me just leave it, you know, put yeah. that on the table. But it brings a, uh, a a tradition that's from a few different sources that Job was the grandson of Esau. Ah. Okay, and lived in the, in that space over there. Okay. And there's a there's a couple of interesting points, and we'll get to this later on. I could see why they would think that. Yeah, yeah. there's 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 an Edomite, and and the, and the descendants of Esau lived in Edom, and yeah. they're Edomites, and so there's an Edomite um, wisdom uh, tradition, Arab, you know, that Arab tradition yeah. from that you know right. region, the desert region there. Um, some. Traditions will say that Job was the the uh, complete ruler over the Edomite kingdom, and others say that he was just one of the rich, you know, yeah. guys of the of that kingdom. And then that led me into looking and into a book that I have not looked at for many years, which is the um, the uh, what do we call it? The apocryphal is it apocryphal? We call it uh, Testament of Job. Okay. Like a, another yeah. another book of Job that was that most scholars says say that was written around the time of Christ. Yeah. You know? So there's a whole there's a whole body of Jewish literature that uh, acts as extensions of the Bible. You know, extensions to yeah the book of Daniel to a, a lot of wisdom literature that comes yes. some key apocalyptic literature that comes out through and, this and, time. And it's a really strange book. And the reason why this, we're really going down a massive rabbit yeah. hole right at the beginning of this episode. I apologise, everybody. The reason why I had looked at this book 20 years ago, mm. even longer, I'd read through this The Testament of Job yeah. book, is because it, it is one of the earliest references to singing in angelic lang- language. All oh, right. That Job's daughters, the second daughters, yeah. you know, the second, yeah. you know, the Testament of Job is basically Job on his deathbed 
and he brings his seven sons and his daughters and all of the slaves and all of his yeah. people who live, live with him and says, let me tell you the story of what happened yeah. many moons ago. Yeah. And he tells the complete story again. Now, again, I don't believe that it is an accurate, you know. And, and oh, no, it's, yeah, it's, it's a classic example of of that, what was happening that in that period. So yes. there was a lot of rabbinic yes. discussion on the existing biblical books. And yep. so there were lots of extensions. Yes. So what happened to Daniel and what happened to Job and, yep. and lots of little additions. Yeah. But they were never, even at the time, they were never considered to be canonical, as we yes. would say. Yes. They were just imaginative extensions. And, it's, and, and it imagines, you know, it retells the story of how Satan attacks Job personally. Yeah. And Job rejects yeah. him every time, and that that Job had had destroyed a a, a, a temple, an a yeah. satanic idol's yeah. temple, and Satan wants to get him back for that, and that's the reason. And it's all you know. And then he has to wear a magic girdle, and then the girdle yeah. allows the women to yeah. like it's really like these crazy fanciful things. But in that, he says, "I am the grandson of Esau." Right. You know, in in that, yeah. and so that's one of those. Traditions, yep. and then we also get you know when you break down these three friends of Job's, uh, Job's friends that you know the guys who are sharing all this wisdom. One of them is definitely, you know, from that, you know, what we say definitely, probably yeah. the you know one in that descendant of you know Edomite yeah. type of thing yeah. there. So it's a, a little fascinating rabbit what hole. A, I went what down a there. rabbit hole that is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So for any other Bible nerds like me who like all that type of stuff, there you go, there you go. We, yeah. we went down there. But let's get into the bulk of it. We're basically going to going to look now at what we what I've called, you know, the three rounds. It's like you know these these fight, these matches yeah. of intellect and debate. It goes through three rounds of Job, um, you know, having a speech. Yeah, his friends, you know, replying him, debating back and forth with yeah. them. And, yeah. go, and then Job will finish off, you know, a, a speech. Job often prays at the end of the speeches. He actually goes from talking to his friends to talking to God. Yep. Halfway through his speeches, he stops praying at the end. He doesn't stop. He stops talking to God. Yeah. And we see the friends going back and forth in through three rounds. Each of his three friends taking a turn, except for the last one, he he shuts up at one point. Yeah, and then we have introduction of this other young, yeah. guy, this other character. That's right. So it's quite neat in yes. in some ways. Yeah, they, they all get three turns, except for uh, Zophar, yeah. who decides enough has I've, been said. Uh, yeah. And by that stage, <laughs> the <happy>. reader is <laughs> also <laughs> feeling the same way. Yeah. Uh, because of course, then this this new guy comes in. Yeah, um, young uh, Elihu. Yeah, uh, Elihu, and and the fact that he's a a young guy. Uh, it's this young whippersnapper that yes. pipes up and thinks that he thinks that he's wiser than these uh, but, old guys, and in some ways he is. Yes. He's a step ahead of them. He is definitely a step ahead. And we'll get to, we'll get to that because there's some interesting stuff around his name. The fact that Elihu is the only one with a Jewish name, yeah, like a Hebrew right, yeah. name, and he's he's a little bit more advanced in the way that he's thinking about the problem of evil in yeah. the world and how yeah. God deals with the yeah. righteous. Yeah. So it's a really interesting step in that right direction. Again, while we're in rabbit trails, because I'll give up all the rabbit trails, <laughs> some some uh, theologians, even to this day, believe that Elihu is the original writer of the Book of Job. Uh, that he as a he, he, okay. he as a Hebrew was given the task and he observed everything from the very beginning and he had some sort of relationship with Job and he was the guy who wrote it all down originally. You know it's impossible I to know, verify it, any of these all things. All of this is impossible. <laughs> some, some very big Presbyterian well, well, scholars yeah, it, 
put forward yeah, that. That's you right. Know, it's no, it is. It's possible, but it's impossible to know yes. for sure. <laughs> Until yeah. we get to heaven, yeah, we can actually right. yeah. we can find out from yeah. Job himself. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay, so so if we had to, I, I don't know how we we haven't even really talked about how we want to encapsulate this episode. Do you want to do like a basic yeah. thing of the of all three rounds? Or yeah, I think um, I think it's worth saying at the start the main theory mm. really is, and and I think is expressed by uh, Eliphaz in uh, four verse seven. Where he says to Job, "Consider now, who, being innocent, has ever perished? That's it. Uh, where were the upright ever destroyed? Yep. And so straight away, the leading theory is you're suffering. You must have done something wrong. Mm. Now, look, no one's. I mean, the fact is, in one sense, no one is perfect. So at a theological level, we could say, yeah, well, in one sense, they're right. No one's perfect. Mm-hmm. And so we we live in a world of suffering and um, you know, dysfunctional environment and dysfunctional people, broken people living in a broken world. Mm-hmm. Why? Because human beings have walked away from God's plan. So there's a sense of corporate responsibility, you know, in, yep. in that sense. So at a broad theological level, we live in the world that we created. Mm-hmm. Now, someone might say, yeah, but I didn't. No, but see, that's the biblical view is that we this sense of corporate responsibility yep. and, and personal responsibility. That's right. Well, yeah. And, and, and we, you know, to some extent we contribute to that, but the, you know, God is committed to empowering human beings, which means that God is also committed to allowing the consequences of our actions to proceed. Hmm. Like sometimes God intervenes and steps in, but because we make choices, he allows those choices to pertain. Yep. You know, and so what we the world that we live in is the way that it is because of those choices. So that's at a broad theological level. So okay, uh, but that that's not really the issue here. Well, we go let's go back a step. I mean Eliphaz who's probably you know uh, traditionally the oldest you know, a friend of Job's. Yeah. yeah. You know, he's 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 the yep. one who's allowed to talk yep. first. Uh, he's obviously um, Again, going down a deep dive, his name is is tied up with tied up with the meaning of gold in Hebrew. Mm. You know, it's, there's obviously some sort of wealth. Mm. He is a Temanite, which is um, Esau's eldest son. Eldest son yeah. was Teman, yeah, and he had and so he is known as Temanite. So there is definitely an yeah. Edomite connection there. And and he's he's the first one to respond. And again, let's just put this into context. They had spent seven days. Yeah. In silence yeah. with their that- friend, consoling, suffering with him, watching him, listening to him. And Job, at the end of that seven days of silence, gives his first speech. And to sum up Job's first speech, my summary of Job, it's the most goth you know, yeah. like, you know, uh, dark. Curses black. the day of his birth. Yep. I wish I never was born. Yep. Why wasn't I like the stillborn and happy? Yeah. Like it's the most dark, miserable, yep. depressing, you know, he is, he is despair of life. Yep. And in, in mm. light of that, his oldest friend Eliphaz here says, listen, yeah, <laughs> I've got to respond. And he's very mild. And he's very gracious yep. in that first speech, I feel. Like there's a real sensitivity and he's gently saying, listen, we all know the way the world works. If you're good, God looks after you. Yep. And if you're bad, you, you get, get punished. punished. That's right. So, so it's it's at that level that they're, you know, working. And, and I guess that broad worldview level 
while that is true and that accounts for why the world is a chaotic place and why there is suffering and so forth, this is specifically about has Job specifically done something wrong? And the yeah. leading theory is you must have specifically done something wrong. And there are even suggestions, you know, that he's, you know, um, defrauded people and that he's robbed the poor and that he's yep. deprived workers of wages. We get that uh, We get we, that as we go yeah, on. Yeah, as yeah. we go on, yeah. we, we get a it, number it, of suggestions. Yeah, they de- <laughs> it, well, it, it builds, they develop. Like Eliphaz in his first speech is very general. And he's inferring like the yeah. way the world works, but he never actually accuses Job of, and you're, you know, he sort of just is inferring it by just talking about yeah. it, letting, and he, and he, and the reason why I think he's doing this real mild, friendly way of talking to someone, very wise. Yeah. Let me just tell you the way the world works, and he's hoping that Job is going to go, okay, you got me, you convicted me, I have, yeah. and but Job doesn't, yeah, Job doesn't, because because he knows that he hasn't done anything specifically to, to warrant this. Exactly. So the interesting thing about the what his friends say is that there's nothing necessarily theologically incorrect. Everything that they say is theologically correct, and yet at the end God corrects them yep. and says, you've not spoken well of me as my servant Job has. Yep. So this is a very interesting idea that you can be completely theologically correct yeah. and completely miss the mark, yeah. like be a complete fool. Yeah, yeah. So just saying correct things, I, like I think this is a really important point. It's a point. great point. Just saying correct things, being theologically correct, oh. is is not actually. It's it's like um, it's like when my when my son's having a go at his sisters or or being a bit negative or, um, and and we'll pull him up and he'll say, but. But it's true. Yeah. But but it's true. Yeah. No, no, that's not the point. Whether it's true or not, it's yeah. whether it's 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 like having someone. You might have someone who's going through a really hard time at the yeah. moment. They might have lost a loved one, lost a job, a relationship broken up, and you give them a bumper sticker and say, yeah. you know, all things work together for God. It's yeah. like, well, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. doesn't help. Yeah, that's right. And and but this is this goes to another level of it, it is that. Yeah. Uh, but remember, I mean, as you just said. Mm. They've done pretty well. They've sat with him for seven days. Yeah. So yeah. Wh- where they go wrong is that they're trying to give, um, they're trying to give uh, an answer for this. You know, they're trying to find an answer. They and, think that they can. And and the and the important thing to note here is this is ancient wisdom, that is pre Bible. Yeah. This is pre Bible wisdom. In fact, Eliphaz says in chapter four that he is basing a lot of his theology on a revelation that came to him yeah. that he believes that came to him by the spirit of god or yeah. a spirit yeah. a you know yeah, heavenly heavenly bit, yeah. being in night and it terrified him in the night yeah. but the spirit said all like basically the wisdom that he's sharing the spirit gave to him saying that you know you know the righteous live by God, and the you know the innocent yeah. don't get punished. Da, da, da. It's a fascinating. Yeah, he says in in four verse fifteen, a spirit glided past my face, and the hair on my body stood on end. Yeah. I stopped, uh, but could not tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes, and I heard a hushed voice. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can even a strong man be more pure than his Maker? God no, places no trust in his servants. If he char- charges his angels with error, how much more those who live in houses of clay, whose foundations are in the dust? You know, so it's amazing. So, you know, how can you how can you claim? And and again, 
theologically, he's this 100%, is, he's 100% right. Like I could pull this out yeah. as a piece of really beautifully expressed theology and yeah. say this is correct. Mm. But the whole there's a problem with the whole enterprise of what's happening here. Yes. And and this is this is the beautiful subtlety of the book of Job mm. is that they're, they're trying to fathom something and nutshell something um, that is just beyond human capacity. Mm. So I think that's that's the first thing. And so this correct theology isn't isn't everything. Yeah. There's you know this and this is where wisdom literature makes its contribution. Yes. It's it's not just about being true, it's about being appropriate and kind of right. Yeah. Having the right perspective, having a that level of humility as mm -hmm. well because you can be all theologically correct and and not have humility to put it mildly, <laughs> and not have right. So yeah. we've seen we've seen Job's first speech where he curses the day of his birth. Yeah, Eliphaz's first response, and the reason why we spent a bit of time on Eliphaz's first response is, I think Eliphaz sort of sets the scene in in each of these rounds. He sort yeah. of sets the case, and the other guys come up and sort of back him up. You know, yeah. they're sort of elaborating there. Do you know just backpedaling to Job's first? Yeah. Speech, you know, is I wish I'd never been born. Mm. That's basically a summary, good yep. summary, of, of what he says. That there's, there's actually, uh, the, w just with my philosophy teacher hat on <laughs> for a moment, uh, which is appropriate for this book uh, of Job. There is a um, well-known philosopher called Emile Kioran. Um, he's a Romanian French philosopher, and he's like an extreme kind of nihilist uh, who. It wrote a book called um, The Problem with Being Born. And he's, he's what's called anti-natalist, which means that he, he believes that we shouldn't have have children because it's this is just a world of suffering and pointlessness and meaninglessness. And when you bring children into the world, it's just an endless uh, attempt to escape from suffering and discomfort and meaninglessness. And wow. So... Hence the name of his book, the problem with being born, yeah. and and so there is the, and there is a stream in in philosophy. Another contemporary philosopher called um, David Benatar also wrote a book called The Human Predicament, um, which has it also uh, it um, advocates this antinatalist position. Uh, this is a thing. This is a thing that mm. people believe it, it, it would be better never to have been born mm. because of the way that the world is. And these philosophers point out that, yes, for us here in the comfortable West, it, we can do okay, but the overwhelming experience of the majority of humanity of all time is that life is suffering, meaningless suffering. Mm. So, you know, and and yet... The book of Job gives us meaning, mm. but it doesn't give us meaning by rationalizing suffering. Mm. And, and that this is what these friends want to do. They want to try and rationalize it. You know, yes. when uh, it, it's – and I think the equivalent to their argument is when we say to people uh, or and, – and you know, probably heard this before – well, there must be, there must be a reason. Mm. There must be a reason for this it's, suffering. Oh, we, we might – in reading through the book of Job, we might find ourselves thinking that we're very sophisticated and we're yep. modern man. Yeah. And we go, of course we don't think yep. this type of things like his friends. Ah, <laughs> for sure. How silly of them. Yeah. But I tell you what, 
when anything bad happens in my life, yeah. whether I stub my toe, yeah. slam my, or something breaks, a car breaks down, I immediately, the most basic instinct yeah. within me is to go to God and go, oh, what have I done wrong? Yeah. What have I done wrong, Lord? Yeah. Show me what I've done. Like, that's the, that's the intuitive thing. That's yeah. the intuitive human thing to do. Yeah. And likewise, I hate to admit it, I just, I've just had a very long conversation this week with a couple of dear friends about a friend that we know who's a pastor and his children have walked away from the Lord. Yeah. And the conversation there is, well, can he be a pastor? Yeah. Because it's almost like this, it's almost like I've been having a Job discussion this week with other people going, yeah. but he's tr- like, and we're trying to work out, where, you know, is he to blame? Is yeah. it, what, who's, what's happening? You yeah. know, if and something's gone wrong, you, someone you wanna, must be. To fault, you want to find yeah. the fault in it. You were pointing fingers and I'm like, hang on. Yeah. So it raises, it raises the question, is there, is there a reason for suffering and hardship? Because that's what we that's what we go to. We we go to looking for okay, what is the reason? Now, what we can say is that God works in and through suffering. You know, mm-hmm. God works all things for the good of those who love Him. Romans eight twenty eight. So we get that. Okay, God works through it. But to say that there is a reason for it assumes something about the the world in which we live yeah. that it is rational. Yes. When actually we know from a biblical worldview that it has descended back into chaos, so even at, at some point, um, God says to Satan, mm. "Because you incited, because uh, what does He say? In, it's in chapter two. Yes, you incited me. You incited him. Sorry, no. you incited me against him. Yes, for no reason. Yeah. So because someone and I, um, when I pointed this out at one stage, someone came back. And, and just took issue with that statement that there that there isn't a reason presented here mm. and said, well, no, we do see the reason for it at the mm. start. Yeah. That that actually shows us what the reason for his suffering is. But does it? Yeah. Does it actually provide us with a reason for his suffering? Well, again, it depends on how you define the word reason. You yeah, know, exactly. Like, you know, yeah. It shows you what is going on and why. Yeah. But it, but he, but it does not tell you. Why God decided to say okay? Yeah, other it, it than, raises more questions. In it, other words, it raises more questions. Other than an example to the you know to all yeah. the generations since, yeah. to get this sort of scope. Yes, we see that, but is that any any help in the suffering that Job is going yeah, through? It at just the time? pushes the question back. Yeah, because again, what? Why do we have? Satan, who is wanting to pull down these people, you know, mm. the, the question just gets pushed back. And so we, we don't, and, and this is what most scholars point out about this book, is that we actually don't get a reason. Mm. What we get is a reason why we could never understand the reason. Now, I mean, the, the, this view that says there must be a reason for suffering actually is, and, and it is quite popular, it's a lot closer to uh, Roman Stoicism, which actually was quite influential mm. in the Christian church. The Christianity really, Rome, Roman Stoicism was the most popular and prominent philosophy at the time of Christ and Paul and the New Testament and, church. And Paul is, ob- the Apostle Paul is obviously well-versed yeah, in it. he's well-versed in it. Now, uh, after, um, you know, 
two or three hundred years, Christianity pretty much supplants Stoicism uh, as a movement. Yeah. But it does so also by incorporating some elements and a little bit too much. So, so sto- sto- Stoics um, were pantheists and they believed that everything, that, that the universe was God. And so everything that happens is part of sort of the mind of God. And it has, it's ultimately rational. Mm-hmm. Even though we don't see the whole picture, mm-hmm. so it may not look rational to us. So when a person goes through suffering, and this is when we talk about taking a stoic attitude, mm-hmm. for them the stoic attitude was realizing, no, this has to be the case. You are suffering of necessity. It's yep. you are reaping something that has been sowed, and you may not be able to see what it is, but there is a reason for it. Because again, they believed in a closed rational. Universe yeah. and and it's fascinating in, in in a lot of the people that I follow in in some of the books that are you growing in popularity, especially amongst um, young men disenfranchised with the world around them, like yeah. they've coming out of the university system and they're like, this is all chaos. St- classic Stoic, you know, yeah. that's classic Stoic philosophy and thought. Yeah. And the works of, especially the works of um, the you know the original Stoic author yeah. Mark. One of the one of the uh, Romans yeah, from way yeah. back, uh, what is it, Mark Anthony? No, um, uh, no, Aurelius, Marcus yeah, Aurelius. Mar- yep. Thank you, Marcus Aurelius. That's he, it. He's one of the later ones, but yeah, yeah. But yep. it, like yep. his works are becoming hugely popular yeah. again yeah. because people are finding meaning. Because first off, this new type of stoicism, stoicism that it's around now, yeah. like wants to define the world without God. So yeah. they're sort of leaving all the God type of stuff yeah. out of it, and they're like, this is a system in which we can have. Ultimate autonomy, responsibility, authority. Oh, yeah, it's making a comeback. Absolutely. Massively. And, I mean, probably the most popular of, of the Stoics uh, is Epictetus, actually. Yes. And I mean, he's very readable and and it really looks, it's it's impressive stuff. Yeah. You know, um, and it advocates this kind of closed universe where, where the universe is God. And that, that kind of pantheism is having a big comeback. Mm. Um uh, another version of that is what's known as panentheism, mm-hmm. which is um, it, it doesn't limit God to the universe, but it does talk about the universe. The universe itself actually is the incarnation of God. That's quite popular even in um, – has had inroads into – some Christian circles through the works of Richard, Richard Rohr, Rohr who, and, who Oprah, and Oprah Winfrey. Yeah, of that's all right. Yeah, so, yeah. And, and it's actually a form of pantheism. Yeah. Uh, and um, so the, the, the thing with this view, and, and this is where the, you know, it's very influential and it was influential in the early centuries, um, it seeded this idea that everything has to be rational. Mm. And, you know, the, and so when, bad things happen, mm. what do we do? We go looking for a reason. Yeah. Now, sometimes there is a reason. Yeah. Okay, so so it's not what we see in the book of Job. is not. It's not always wrong. Yeah. Because, you know, if you do something stupid, then bad consequences will follow. There mm. are plenty of times where we do actually suffer from uh, really stupid things that yeah. we do. Okay. And there's plenty and of And God allows that actually. Well, there's plenty of examples of that in the word of God itself. Absolutely. You know, so we see that unfolding in, in many different cases, including the life of David, you know, yes. David's a classic example. Yeah. Um, but the, that neat idea, which again, you know, is advocated in the Proverbs. Mm. It's like what you sow, you reap that kind of wisdom. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't always work out like that because it's not a closed it's the, the universe is not just a closed system 
And, and that's it's not rational. It's and in that's what we see. In the, this is why yeah. we have the Book of Job. Yeah. This is why we have that's the right. Book of Job. And remember, Satan Satan represents the forces of chaos, yes. right? Yeah. So to talk about to refer to that conversation and Satan's motives as the reason mm. is um, is not going to work because Satan is the very representative of the forces of not reason but chaos. Yeah. So okay, he has his reasons, but they're not that's reasonable. That's a great point. That's a okay. great point. So. So this is the world that we live in. It's a chaotic world. And yep. yet, and this is an important point, over and above all of that, in some way that we can't fathom, God is sovereign. Yep. And sovereignty is, is different to the, I mean, because sometimes we say, well, God is in control of everything. That's not sovereignty. Yeah, that's, sovereignty is, is, is a little, is more nuanced than that. It's, yep. it's a step above that. Yeah. Because in, in a, in a very important sense, human beings were put in control of the world. Yes. We were put in charge of the yeah. world. Yeah. I mean, and, and I know that when people say God is in control, they, they are talking about God's sovereignty. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes it can sound like, well, God is causing every minute thing that happens. Yeah. No, he's not. Ultimately, human beings did cause the world to descend into chaos Yes. Um, at the temptation of the evil spiritual world following yep. Satan, and he has a part in this. And so what we have now is a world that isn't always rational. It is chaotic. Yep. So there are some things that just are bad. Yep. And and saying to people, you know, trying to find a reason, uh, oh, well, there must be a reason for this. But deep down we know that it's just bad. It just shouldn't be like this. And 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 th- that theme is carried all the way through the rest of the scripture. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, yeah. It, all the way through the New Testament. And I believe that even, even you know, Paul enunciates it time and time again, even in Paul's own life, that yeah. sometimes this suffering, when the suffering isn't your fault and there's no reason for it, thank God because you're able to find more of God in this suffering. Yeah, that's right. So you absolutely. Know, so God is, and this is where the sovereignty of God works, that yeah. God works out his perfect plan in That's, the midst of the chaos, but he doesn't cause the chaos. Yeah, yeah. I mean, s- people struggle with this perspective oh. because it sounds like w- when you say, no, it's actually just bad. Don't mm. try and find a reason for it. It's just shouldn't be that way. You know, someone someone dies or, oh, but uh, no, it's just bad. It's yeah. just the w- and And God is delivering us and at... at and for that person has has actually delivered them yeah. if you know if they've trusted in Christ they are delivered from yeah. this world already yeah. uh, ahead of time yeah. uh, but there is this tendency within us to to want to find a reason why yeah. did you know i mean and and often it's expressed in terms of why did god allow this um that's a tricky one yeah. because yes god allows things but on the whole that's the rule god allows is allowing the world mm. to remain in chaos so that we feel the problem, mm. so that we recognise, and, and again, um, this is sounding like I'm offering a reason for this, yep. but again, this pushes back the question. Well, why? We don't know why, God, but we, we do know, yes, God is allowing the world generally to be in a chaotic state. And as a result of that, we, rec- we recognise uh, actually, this world is in a really bad state. Mm. So Paul in in Romans chapter five says talks about suffering. He said suffering produces perseverance, which produces character, which produces hope. Mm. And he says that hope, we rejoice in the hope of glory, and by this hope we're saved. 
So wow. we're saved by the experience of feeling the sting of this impersonal of this of this imperfect world. Yeah. And we therefore look up to God. We say, "This is I'm not in a right state. This world is, in a not, is not in a right state. So therefore, we don't put our hope in this world. We put our hope in God. Mm. Paul says, that's how you get saved. <laughs> I, I love the fact that we've got to that. It's all in my mind again because I go to the dumbest you know, thing ever and the lowest common denominator. It's almost like two types of people who... Who, who love you know? There's two types of people who, who love two different types of movies. Yeah, you know, you, you're you're the classic art house, you know, yeah. movie yeah. where you know the character the movie finishes and there's no hope for the character. Yeah. Yeah. The character it's just another yeah. day. It just goes on, and everybody who wants the Hollywood ending yeah. is like, what? And you're sitting there going, bravo. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Because it's because that's reality. <laughs> Whereas the Hollywood ending, where he gets the girl at the end, he gets and the million dollars, after. and they move into the big house. You're the one going, ah, rubbish, and everybody else is like, that's what I wanted. <laughs> yeah, because and 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 again, going back to Emil Kioran and David Benedar, I mean, you know, these guys are atheistic uh, yeah. philosophers, and and they have such a dark outlook. But given their atheism, I agree with their outlook. Yeah. I, I agree that there is no, you know. That, <laughs> with, that without this is God a, in the picture. You know, and, and in some ways they want us to get out of our little bubble and realise that most of humanity in all time has, has been in a terrible state mm. and has suffered grievously. And we've, we're just sort of dissociating ourselves from that in our little cushioned uh, prosperity bubble here yeah. in the prosperous West. And, and there's so much about their very bleak philosophy that I can, as a Christian, say, actually, yes, you're actually right. Given your presuppositions that I completely disagree with, obviously. Yeah. Um, but I think we need to – we keep trying to believe and we keep trying to create heaven for ourselves here on earth. And we've got to stop doing that. It's, I- it's the utopia – agenda of human beings. We've been trying to create utopia and you just can't do that. And the perfect pill to stop that onset is the book of Job. Yeah, exactly. Is the book of Job. All right, let's take a quick break. (laughs) We're still only a few chapters in, buddy. We've got a lot of chapters to go here to get through this episode. You're on Thrive Deeper, part two of the book of Job with Matt and DJ. CJ here, and I hope you're enjoying this discussion on the book of Job. Yeah, we're going pretty deep in the philosophy around this entire book and worldview, and hopefully you're getting, uh, you know, you're getting a lot out of it there. Now, if you've got any questions, you've got any comments about this, this is the place we want you to go to, thrivetoday.tv, thrivetoday.tv. There's a couple of things I want to tell you about that's happening at thrivetoday.tv in particular. Number one is we have just released a new episode of Thrive Perspectives. And I've got to say, Matt and I are pretty chuffed on this episode. Uh, you know, if we can dare, if we dare say that about an episode that we've made. Thrive Perspectives, our 15th episode, is all about what we've called the big 
picture. We've tried to, in one hour, encapsulate a worldview of Christianity and what's actually going on in the world that we've done that so you've got an episode that you can share with your friends, someone who might be looking into the faith for the first time, someone who might have some questions about basic Christianity 101. And we want you to be able to give this as a one-off episode and say, hey, listen to this episode of Thrive Perspectives. These guys cover sort of a worldview on Christianity. Now, tied up with that, if you've listened to that Thrive Perspectives episode, we're giving you the opportunity to give them a free Thrive book specifically made for new Christians. It's called Living Life as God as God Intended. It's a 50-day program that Matt's come up with to walk through the very basics of Christianity and as people get started in reading the Bible for themselves. It's a fantastic resource and we'd love you to have it for free. So here's what you do. Head over to thrivetoday.tv. Make sure you subscribe to Thrive Perspectives, our sister podcast. Have a listen to that big picture episode. Share it with a friend. And if they are interested and want anything more out of this, then please get them a free copy of the Thrive New Christians booklet. It's free for you. All you need to do is jot us a line over there at the website. Give us your address and we'll send it out to you. It's as simple as that. All right, that's enough from me. This is going to be a long episode. We're going through the book of Job here. It's our second part of our three-part series on the book of Job. Let's go back into it now on Thrive Deeper. This is Thrive Deeper, DJ Payne and Matt Jacoby with you as we continue through the book of Job. This is our second part of our three-part series on the book of Job, and we are covering the bulk of the book. Now, we're not going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, which we love to do usually. This is such a big philosophical book with so many different exchanges. We, we're we just sort of covering a big picture yeah, of it. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I've provided, uh, Matt's given me his uh, his uh, semi-thumbs up on this on this piece yeah, of literature. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in the show notes of this episode, you'll, you'll see we're providing for you for free an overview, a simple one-page PDF overview of the outline of the book of Job. Um, and it shows, you know, basically covering... Uh, very simple. You can see it in one uh, in one page here. The back and forth between Job and his friends, the basic themes of it, and the patterns that you can see in it right there. Now, as we're covering the back and forth, we've just talked about the basic scenario to sort of wrap it up for the three exchanges between uh, Job and his three friends, mm. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Mm. Um, you know, they basically get progressively more and more accusational yeah. to, towards Job. Bildad is the second friend. He is a Shuite or Shuhite. Uh, in 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 the Hebrew Bible, um, they make it pretty clear that a Shuhite was. Uh, when Abraham, if you remember back the story of Abraham and Sarah, when Sarah died, Abraham married his second wife, Keturah. Mm-hmm. I think that's how we pronounce it. Excuse me, anybody that's, who's- no, That's pre- good. Yep. I'm, hopefully I'm pronouncing this right. One of Abraham's and, and Keturah's sons was Shua. And, and Bildad is traditionally in the Hebrew Bible considered to be a direct descendant of that. I love it. You've done your research I've, on I've the done, details I, of this one. Yeah, I've, re- I've really, I've really yeah. deep dived in, in, into who these people are because I'm fascinated with them. So Bildad comes from that Abrahamic 
you know, the second, you know, um, you know, from the second marriage, their tradition. And he's coming in and, and he has three speeches as well, building on what Eliphaz says. And, and in that first speech from Bildad, we get, we get the first progression of, you know, this worldview that Suffering only because happens when somebody has done something wrong. And Bildad sort of advances the case in his first speech. He says in chapter 8, listen, it might not be because you sinned, Job, but we know that your children probably sinned. Mm. And God's taken them and you're so probably suffering for your children. Yeah. So it's almost this, again, a very basic human instinct that we even see in in a sort of an echo of with the disciples with Christ, this person's suffering is because of his yeah. parents. Is it some? Is a is it a family yeah. thing? It's a family yeah. thing being affected. It's it's an extension of the attempt or the belief that we live in a rational universe. Yes. Again, the worldview point here is an important one because these guys believe that we live in a rational world where good people. Yep. Good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. It's like this mechanistic uh, universe. And actually, that is not the biblical worldview. Yeah. The name of the game is chaos. It's not a rational universe. It's not the way that God wants it to be. Um, and and ultimately, uh, how the sovereignty of God works in the midst of that is beyond our capacity to grasp. And that yeah. that is the point of this book. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I... One one point through this is um, is with Job and his complaints throughout this book. Now, mm. a question that I want to raise here is: Is Job doing something wrong by complaining the way that he's complaining to God? Now, I bring this up because um, the I, I looked at the Bible Project on yep. this. Mm. Uh, absolutely love their work. Love their work. Yep. Big fans I, of the Bible Project. I, I disagree a little bit with them oh, on, on this one. Oh, <laughs> controversial. I love it. Bring it on. Now, now because, again, being <laughs> steeped in the Psalms, the yeah. idea of complaint doesn't, doesn't, doesn't look worry. to me like yeah. there's something wrong. Mm. Because what I see Job doing here in his complaints is, I mean, he talks about arguing his case before God at oh. some stage yes. uh, here. Um, yep. He says, but I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. Yeah. And, and, and so he's bringing complaints. And, and, and I think, um, you know, a number of people, and, and I think they, that this is, they go a little bit this direction, say, well, you know, Job shouldn't be complaining uh, to God that this is part of what he does wrong and what he repents of. Now, remember, God sort of corrects Job, but he doesn't, he doesn't necessarily charge him with sin as such because remember he's saying he's the people that are getting it wrong are the friends of Job's. Yes. Now what Job repents of in the end is the whole um, endeavour to try to understand. Yeah. That that's actually the problem. He's, yeah. It's not the fact that he complains, and, and I, this is where. The, well, you, you, in, in, my, in my opinion, I yeah. would say. Now, I'm saying this because everything, all of his complaints, sound exactly like things that I know from the Psalms. Okay. What is the point of difference in what you're pushing back on, you know, not harshly, with what you've heard in the Bible Project? What, what is their, uh, you know, um, what are they asserting? Well, they sound like they're asserting the fact that Job's complaints, that he shouldn't be complaining to God. Okay. And shouldn't be – and 
shouldn't be saying why, why, why. Now, there's an aspect of why, like, for example, why have you forsaken me? Mm-hmm. Now, um, that is presented as a perfectly legitimate complaint mm. uh, because it's not, uh, it's not just give me a reason. And there is an aspect of this in Job, but there's another aspect of it, of just the complaint mm. before God. Mm. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm suffering. Why is this happening mm. uh, in terms of a, more of a complaint as God, you need to do something about this. And in the end, God does do something yeah. uh, for Job. And we'll get into that he in the answers, next- He we'll does get, actually yeah. answer Job's prayer. And we'll get into that next episode yeah. in a fortnight's time. So but- I, I just think we can we can overstate this aspect of it and, and see that Job's doing something wrong by complaining. I think we need to be careful there because complaint, according to the Psalms, is actually a, a, an expression of faith. Now, complaint isn't grumbling. Yes. And as I've said before, grumbling, like the grumbling of the Israelites- in the desert, for example, it's what we do when we walk away from God. Complaint is when you go to God yes. and saying, no, I know that you're good, but I'm just not seeing this. God, do something about this. And th- and this is the basic premise. And I agree 100% with you. Yeah. I- I'm 100% with you. I believe that the book of Job and the reason why I have found friends and family who are believers to really, the people who repel against the book of Job, who do not like it, is because they fundamentally believe that Job is doing something wrong in complaining. And I, again, because I speak to everybody in the metaphor of movies that everybody has seen, because people absorb movies and remember movies in a different type of way, I often, and it's a very different case, but I often say, remember Lieutenant Dan in Forrest Gump. Now, I'm not vouching. I'm not vouching for Forrest Gump as the greatest movie, and I'm saying it's a Christian movie or anything like that. But there is a storyline within the Forrest Gump film of this character of Lieutenant Dan who is angry at the universe, and in particular during a storm on a boat. Well, he's angry at God. He's he decides hate, to yeah. have a fight with God in the storm. Yeah. A wonderful biblical picture and very Job-esque, yeah, you know, right. type of thing. And in the morning, like he basically accuses, it says, okay, kill me now if you want me gone. Yeah. And Forrest Gump makes a point of the next morning, it's a beautiful scene with, with you know, Lieutenant Dan with no legs swimming in the water, he, in the still water, in the still peace. He says, I think- Somehow God and Lieutenant Dan made their peace, you know, yeah. that night. And and a lot of people go, a lot of Christians go, oh, hang on, that's not Christian. That's not a godly attitude. That's not a biblical thing. And I'm like, have you read the book of Job? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Have you read the Psalms? Yeah. There has been many times in my life, I'm not proud to admit it, but yeah. I'll be honest and say, I have fought with God. I have complained yeah. bitterly about my circumstances and I've had it out with him. Yeah. And I really believe that each of those times, it, was, it wasn't it was the argument. It was the fact that I came to him with all of my emotions, yeah. all of my honesty, all of my depravity, everything. Yeah. And I said, what is going on? I really believe that at the end of it, just as me as a father with my own children, yeah. might not be happy with the silly argument that my child is yeah. giving, but the fact that they're coming to me for advice exactly. and thing, yeah. I go, come here. Exactly. And and that is essentially, I think the Psalms put God's stamp of approval. Like, you just come to me and let it all out. Amen. So, cause, because I think it would be unfortunate if we discredited or, or 
um, devalued or in, sorry invalidated yes. Job's complaining. Yes. Like, if you're going through something terrible, take it to God and complain to God. Let's not invalidate that. Job's no. not doing something wrong there. Yeah. Um, now, he does accuse, at certain points, yeah. he does accuse God of some pretty, you know, not yeah. great stuff. But again, you're sh- <laughs> if you can't see it visually here, that just gave me a shrug like, yeah, so what? Like, But again, I agree with you, yeah. Matt, because yeah. I have done the same thing in my complaining. Yeah. I and, have and said, the Psalms do the same thing. Yeah, I have said, God, you've said this. What are, are you a liar that you have promised me this and this? Yeah. Now, am I proud to say that I, at a, in, a, in a fight with God, I called him a liar? No. Okay. God is not That's a liar. Right. But I believe that in that honesty, and I'm not, I'm not building a sermon or preaching that God is a liar, but just the same way as we see in Psalms in Job, I think God wants us to come to him That's right, with, with that all level of it. Of- that with that level of honesty yeah. and frankness. You know, Psalm 74 says, Lord, why have you rejected us forever? <laughs> now, God had specifically said that he would not reject his people forever. Yeah. So it's like it's saying, God, you're being unfaithful. Yeah. And, and yet we have this psalm yeah. given to us In the word as, as though God is pointing to us and say, I want you to do that. Yeah. Like, because what, what that psalm is doing, and, and in some sense it's not true because... Mm. God hadn't rejected his people forever. Mm. But the fact is the psalmist feels like that, mm. and it's it's like a covenant provocation. Yeah. It's like it's deliberately phrased mm. to point out to God, it doesn't look like you are being faithful. Now, the other thing, I'll keep, I'll keep banging on to this, because I really do think this is important as we come to this text, the book of what it is. This is a book that is, in most people's evaluation, a pre-covenant book, a pre-Abrahamic covenant yep. book. Like this is a people coming, an ancient people coming to God in a really ancient way. But I, but I'm not trying to devalue in in that yeah. in the relationship. I think that as the Bible continues, we see God's relationship and His promises sort of changing the mm. relationship a little bit. Yeah, we we sort of can come to God now with a few more promises in our pocket. Yeah, we can. We've got a relationship with Him that's a little bit different to what Job had here and the ancient people. Yeah, I think you've got to be careful there because it doesn't – I wouldn't want to anchor this too that, much that, to a period. That's my dispensation. Yeah, I wouldn't out. want to anchor this too much to a period because actually the, the book doesn't do that. No. So let's not try I, to do I, something yes. in the book. It's like, it's like when people take a book of the Bible uh, – And know, say like, that it's for this yeah, period. Yeah, like a, one of the you know, minor prophets or where, where it, it actually doesn't say who it's to, but they try and work it out. Yeah. And then once they've worked it out, then interpret the book in the light of that. If yeah. the book – needed to be interpreted in the light of a particular situation, it would tell us that situation. And if it doesn't, then it stands outside of that in its own right. And the book of Job, I think, is one of those books. I I I agree with you. I I I want to I want to sort of keep one foot in both camps. <laughs> I want to one one foot in that dispensationalist camp, going, okay, I know when this is written in this period, as in like when the story occurs and how God relates to man in that period. Yeah. But yet we have the book for now because it's it's important for us for now. Um, yeah. Okay, but, but let's go real quick. Um, the only other character we have to talk about. Well, there's two more. Zophar, uh, uh, Namathite. Um, and this is where no, I can find no scholarship knowing anything yeah. about this. We know that there was a, um, again, in that Arabic area, there was a place called Neymar. Yeah. He's from there. We know nothing about him so far. He only gives two speeches. Yeah. And he is 
full on of all three of their of of yep. of, of, of uh, Job's friends. He is the first one to directly acclu- accuse Job of wickedness. Yeah. Uh, in chapter eleven, in his first speech, Zophar basically says, "Listen, let's." Stop beating around the bush. Job, you sinned. This is a problem because yeah. of your sin. He he sort of goes the next step to the other two and really lays it's it out. It's probably why he only needs two speeches yeah. because he just puts it out there really bluntly. <laughs> he, he's he, the blunt guy. He's the blunt guy. He is the one who just goes for it. He's actually quite obsessed with wickedness and how the wicked work. He's paid a lot of attention yeah. to the wicked, uh, you know, and he has his speech. So those three original friends – have the speeches going back and forth, back and forth through three rounds. Zophar only talks twice. The only other interesting point that I found really interesting in looking through the outline is that in Job's speeches and responses, and Job has 10 speeches, again, yeah, yeah. you know, that yeah. Jewish way of Hebrew way of yeah. writing of perfection. He has 10 speeches through, yeah. through this back and forth. And halfway through, Job stops praying at the end of his speeches. So there is split in half again, yeah. like in that in that Hebrew yeah. way of writing. The first half of Job's speeches, he will defend himself, he will talk to his accuser, and then he will pray to God. Halfway through, he just stops praying to God. He's like, I'm done. I'm yeah. done praying to yeah. God. And he just keeps on, you know, making his point to his friends and just making his point. Now, some of the classic points that Job makes, there's one in particular that I think we need to note on this episode, is that uh, right in the middle here in his fifth speech, he says, if only I had a mediator that could take my case. I literally just had that open in front of me. That was the next thing I was going to say. Great minds think alike. And and I think these moments, there are what I would call Christological moments in Job. Quite amazing Christological moments. Given where this that this book doesn't sit yeah. sort of in the mainstream no. necessarily. Yeah. But they are some of the clearest yeah. Christological or mes- messianic, perhaps let's mm. use a Jewish term, mm, mm. messianic moments. That is moments that anticipate a and here a mediator between yeah. man and God. And and his point in saying the mediator is because he's he's saying, I'm being I'm suffering I understand that this suffering is not because of something that I've done. If only there was a someone who stood between God and me who could defend me yeah. and could be my mediator. Yeah. And it's like, wow, that that's is right. se- that is setting up. Yeah. We will have that one yeah, day. Yeah, that's right. And so I, I think that's the first thing. And that, and that anticipates um, a need, actually, that that the – that that messianic role of Christ as the priest, and remember this idea of the priesthood is already yes. there in the Jewish context. Yeah. So any Jewish readers like our mediation, mm. that's the role. That's what the priests do, and, and ultimately that's what Christ does. And, and we see Job playing that role in the in his life of his children. He yeah. is he he basically says, "I'm the mediator between yeah. God and my children because they might have sinned. They yeah. not be. I will sacrifice these animals for my." So he's he's yeah. aware of these priestly concepts and sacrifices, but he understands in this case, he needs something more than what he can do himself. It's amazing. That's right. And the other other great moment is in chapter 19 from verse 25, Mm. where Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the earth he will, uh, so and that in the end he will stand on the earth. Mm. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh... I will see God. Yeah. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. To me, this is 
right in the middle of this book and it yeah. does sit right in the middle and yes. anything that sits in the middle is important. is important. That's the way that Hebrew literature works. And, and, it, and, it's, and it's an amazing point. In that, in that middle part of Job, two things happen. He makes that incredible proclamation about the future and he stops praying. Yeah, in, that's in, right. in defense of his yeah, in defense right. of his position, and it's like wow, we and then we go. The second half is even darker. Yeah, that's right. You know, so I mean, his his hope here that uh, he he um, this point about his redeemer um, and that he will in the end he will stand on the earth. I mean, that's a really um, intriguing statement. There's been mm. a lot of comment on that and exactly what he means by that. Mm. Um, you know, I would take that as anticipating this this need for a divine saviour, mm. and then uh, the reference to the resurrection. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. In my flesh I will see God. I mean, mm. this is, and and even the fact that within a biblical framework, no one can see God mm. and live, mm. and and yet Job anticipates a time where in his flesh. He will be able to see God. Yeah. So he's so right here he is and, and and I think this is the vital perspective of this, that his situation is causing him to look beyond this life. Yes. You know, he he's looking for something better. He is anticipating something better. Uh, yeah, he's he's anticipating the future. And I and I think I read this in somewhere, I can't remember where again. I'm going back to these people being ancient people. Yeah. They might have a living, not a living memory, but they have a memory of this Eden story where Adam and Eve, Eden Eden story where Adam and Eve in their flesh did see like. Oh, he, that, absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. He, he knows that that happened in the future and he, and he believes yeah. that somehow God is going to make that happen again one day. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. so that's the hope in the resurrection. Yeah. So this is a, so right here in the book of Job, we have what, in, in a biblical sense, is really the great hope mm. for the future. It's not a disembodied existence of us floating around in the clouds, but actually in our flesh, having that direct access for, to God. Yeah. And in the midst of Job's suffering, he's lost everything, but what does he want the most? This is what he wants the most. Mm. So that he would move beyond this situation and in his flesh, after his body has been destroyed in death, that yet in his flesh that he would rise up and that he would see God. Mm. To me, that's just Amazing. a remarkable moment in the centre of this book. Yeah. Yeah. And that's important. Yeah. Okay. Let me fly through this really quickly, Matt, because yeah. we're running out of time yeah. and I want to wrap this up. That's the centre of the book. We, we, you know, we're going through, and then I just want to briefly say in round three, Eliphaz comes again in his third response and basically says to, to Job, repent. Job's eighth speech is basically, look, God's not here anymore. The wicked yeah. are not punished. He doesn't pray. Bill Dad jumps in there and basically some, I can sum up his speech by saying, listen, how dare you even have any complaint to God because we are nothing compared to God. Yeah. Job gives another speech. God is everywhere. He controls everything. Nothing's outside of his you know, control. And then he gives his, you know, and then it makes a point that Zophar is so fed up with it, he doesn't even want to respond. Zophar's yeah. like, no, got nothing yeah. to say to that. Yeah. And then he gives, and then Job in chapters 27 to 31 gives his 10th and his final speech. And it's it's basically summed up in saying, all right, God, answer me because I'm innocent. Yeah. Like he's, right. he's, he's, the thrust of his whole complaint is I am, I am innocent. Answer me there. And then we have 
five chapters devoted to the young man of Elihu, mm. who is this passionate, angry young man with all this, you know, yeah. all this stuff. And apparently he's been there from the very beginning. Surprise. He's watched the whole thing. He's listened to the whole thing. And he's kept quiet because he's the young guy. And in a Jewish society, it, you, respect for elders and the wisdom of age. Yeah. But this book is inverting everything. So, so these men who are meant to be the wise men and have all the answers yeah. have really failed. And he's the young guy and he's done the right thing and he's kept silent. So um, uh, Elihu is an indictment on these friends because what he's going to say, it makes a lot more sense. Yeah. He he goes hard against the friends in that first in that first, yeah. his first part of the speech yeah. in chapter thirty two. It's all directed to the three old men, and then he spends the rest of his time directing to Job, and then sort of making his yeah. case of the philosophy of the world. Well, he sen- he spends about an hour actually just introducing his speech. You know, yeah. I will now speak. Let me now speak. I, it's, it's just, okay. Yeah. Can you just say what you want to say? It's. <laughs> It's a classic. <laughs> it, it is. It is very. Uh, you know, the very passionate yeah. young man speech. There, he, he does hold on to that uh, perspective. You know, far be it from God to do evil, from the Almighty, to, you know, to do wrong. Yeah, uh, he repays everyone for what they have done. He brings on the and so. And again, that's we're not that's theologically correct. Yeah, and it's very much this attitude of look, how dare you, old fellas, yeah. speak like this? Because God is greater. It's more nuanced than you can imagine. That's right. So, but so he, he's going to point. And this is the key thing. He's going to point to the to the ineffability of God, the fact that this is beyond searching out, that God is beyond our ability to understand. So, for example, in 36.26, he says, How great is God beyond our understanding? The number of his years is past finding out. You know, again, uh, Paul pretty yeah. much quotes from yeah. him yeah. Uh, in uh, Romans uh, chapter 11. Yep. Um, so he's, that's going to be he, his point. You know, God's voice thunders. This is uh, 37 verse 5. In marvellous ways, he does great things beyond our understanding. Um, he says, listen to this, Job. Stop and consider God's wonders. Do you, know, do you know how God controls the clouds and makes his lightning flash? Sounds exactly pretty much what God is saying. So, yeah. um, so he, he does actually, he kind of gets there. You know, verse 5, do you know how God controls it controls the clouds and makes his lightning flash. Do you know how the clouds hang poised? These wonders of him who is perfect in knowledge. You know, no no one can look at the sun. Verse 23 of chapter 37, the Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power. Yeah. And then there's no answer and yeah. we go straight into God's answer. And yeah. basically God says a very similar thing. Yeah. Elihu, Elihu, this young man, is is a great part of this story and it's it's so separate to the to the rest because he takes a lot of the arguments he sort of sums up the arguments of the three wise yeah. men he answers a couple of job's questions as best as he can and he slowly builds the 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 courtroom scene yeah. into and now and now you know he, yeah. he builds it up to an introduction that god sees fit and we're going to get into this in yeah. the next episode we're out of time now but he, he sets the scene for God, basically. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and, and he anticipates the things that God says. And, and I think the fact that he gets the closest mm. and that he's a young guy is the is the indictment. In a Hebrew context, that, that matters. It's mm. like, oh, gee, this is humiliating. This young whippersnapper comes in and totally puts these old guys to shame mm. with his argument, as we see, which is the one that sounds the most like God's. Now, 
you know, he doesn't quite get there because, again, he still sounds like he's inv- invalidating Job's position, really. Um, I mean, he still wants to indict Job in some sense. He just wants to say, but we, we can't. I mean, he has recourse to the fact that we can't understand. So he gets much closer, but he doesn't quite get there. What is clear from God's perspective is that God, um, he, th- there is a sense of rebuke in, in God for Job because uh, like a general rebuke in, in terms of how could you even think that you could understand this, even mm. if I could give you an answer. Okay. But nevertheless, Job is not rebuked for suffering his you know, the confusion and the, and for his complaints necessarily. Mm. And, and I think, you know, God's, while God's response, and we'll talk about this next week, um, while God's response causes Job to repent, in, you know, of that, yet, yet there is a sense in which God still cherishes the fact that Job is hung in there, mm. that he hasn't cursed God, that he, he, he has, you know, he's complained, he's suffered, and yet, in some sense, God is okay with that. He just reminds Job, don't try to be God. Remember, you are not God. Remember who I am. And that's really the answer that, that God gives. So what Job gets in the end is an encounter with God that blows his mind and that makes him realize that I'm in the midst of something that is beyond what I can even begin to fathom. And I think he's glad at that point that he's just held on. Now he just holds on, but he does hold on. And that's all we can do through those kinds of times. Oh boy, holding on that sometimes, especially these times, it feels like that's all we're doing some days is just holding on. I think this middle part part of uh, you know the book of Job really gives us some strength there, some some energy, some insight of what it's like to hold on in the times of suffering. Well, that's it. Our second part as our uh, three-part series for the book of Job. Make sure that if you've got any questions about what you've been reading in the book of Job, get it to us because we'd love to wrap it up in our next episode as we wrap up the book of Job. We'd love to hear your questions. If you've got any insight or questions about it, please head over to thrivetoday.tv. And as I said before, make sure you check out our episode of Thrive Perspectives, the one about the big picture. We want to give you a copy of Thrive Thrive New Christians for anybody that's in your life that's got some questions there about Christianity. Well, we'll see you in a fortnight next time on Thrive Deeper. Thanks for listening to this episode of Thrive Deeper. Matthew and DJ really appreciate the questions and thoughts about what you're reading in the Bible as you go through it with Thrive. Our home on the internet is thrivetoday.tv. You can contact us, ask questions, see all of our resources and much more at our website, thrivetoday.tv. The Thrive Today Network is on Facebook. Our Facebook page and links to our community groups are waiting for you. Just search and like Thrive Today page in Facebook now. Visit ratethispodcast.com slash thrivedeeper. If you appreciate what we do and want to help us reach more people, go to ratethispodcast.com slash thrive deeper. 
Until next time, our prayer is that these shows will inspire you to go deeper into God's Word and thrive. This was another DJP.FM production.